0: Hello and welcome to Core Values, the religion and humanities podcast, produced by the Department of Comparative Religion and Humanities at California State University, Chico. I'm your host and chair of the department, Daniel Weidlinger. We have a special episode for you today. We have recorded a panel of former, current, and future students in our online religious studies program who are going to talk about the importance of studying religion. As you know, religion is an extremely important part of human life since time immemorial, even back to our uh, distant ancestors along the hominid line, uh, human beings have been practicing some sort of religion forever. In every culture we know of, there's been religion. In every time period we know of, there has been religion. Even in the communist countries where they tried to oppress religion, like in Soviet Russia, there were forms of religion that were maintained underground, not to mention that communism itself came to look kind of like a religion. So you simply can't escape it. And many of us feel that it's a little unfortunate that it does, the study of religion doesn't get the, the funding that some other fields get. Because in some corners, there's a sense in which it's more of a luxury to study religion. But if you look at the world around you, if you open a newspaper or read a news website randomly on any day, you will see a huge amount of articles about religion. As you know, in America, like this very uh, few months, there's been a lot of debates about pulling back on some of the uh, abortion rights, and of course, much of that is driven by religious views about it. You see um, discussion about capital punishment or not. Much of that is driven by religious views about it. Of course, this summer, the United States just pulled out of Afghanistan, and having spent two trillion dollars there it's back to square one and many scholars argue that if there had been a deeper understanding of the religion of that region we might have been able to handle our time there a little bit more effectively rather than trying to force a certain western ways on people that you know if without a more sensitive understanding of how they were going to react to it um, they could have been presented in a different framework that might have been more effective so those are just some examples, and there's many, many more you can go over, where religion plays a very strong role. So without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Bill Zanganer-Lester, who's the head of the Religious Studies and Humanities Department at American River College in Sacramento.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you for this introduction. Thank you for uh, hosting this event tonight. Uh, we're so excited at American River College to partner with Chico State, uh, with specifically with your program. That's a very inspiring program. We've had several conversations. I've worked with some of your predecessors, other folks in your department. uh, And I can say with confidence that this is my favorite religious studies department at anywhere in California. Thank you. And I will stand by that this recording. So uh, I'm very excited, very happy to be here. So this weekend, as some of you may know, uh, this is, we had the confluence, a very interesting confluence, right? So right. we have Passover this weekend. Uh, we have uh, Easter this weekend. And Ramadan is still occurring this weekend. So we had the overlap, right. the three. It was also a full moon this weekend. Uh, this prompted the comedian uh, Stephen Colbert to make the joke that this weekend was a great opportunity for interfaith werewolves. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the confluence of the three plus the, the full moon but uh, in, in all seriousness the, uh, there's also Hindu, Baha'i and Sikh holidays being celebrated uh, all right now there hasn't been a confluence of this many holidays since 1991 so it's a very uh, unique kind of moment in time that we're sharing this space together So, and a very timely night to be having this to be talking about interfaith work um, as, as we heard there's this idea out there that religion is out of date and that we live in some kind of post-religious society, as though the religious influences that have shaped the world have somehow disappeared. Uh, and as we also heard, you can turn on the news, open a newspaper, and find out that this is still very much relevant. We live, as you may be aware, in among the most religiously diverse democracies in the world. So it is a part of being, of participating in public life, if we are among the most religiously diverse democracy, to have some knowledge about navigating religious diversity. I think it is a critical competency, a critical cultural competency for navigating 21st century democracy in any setting. Story that's, uh, you know, impacted me was uh, I was teaching a world religions class and you know classes starting and one of our Muslim students was holding the door open for everyone and I joked with her and said you know hey this is my job to welcome everyone to the class please allow me to hold the door and she stops me and she says professor do you know why I'm holding the door open for everyone this morning and I said no why and she said but she's wearing hijab and she says because I have learned in my career as an undergraduate um, that people have certain opinions about me because I wear my hijab, and I feel obligated to hold the door open for everyone and look them in the eyes to reassure them that I'm not a terrorist. And I feel like it is my responsibility to do that in all of my classes. And this, of course, you know, struck a very deep chord with me, here's a student single-handedly carrying the burden of her entire faith uh, on her shoulders and doing it with a smile. Um, And that was a, a very powerful reminder that this isn't some abstract thing, talking about religious diversity isn't an abstract thing. In your classes, at your job spaces, the DMV, anywhere you go in public, you are encountering religious diversity. We have the largest Afghani refugee population in the entire country is here in Sacramento. The largest Sikh population in the entire country is in Yuba City. right? Sacramento and Northern California is a very diverse place. We have a ton of religious diversity that we're navigating. So the question is, do you want to wait until you're thrown into a situation where religious diversity is present, to to think about how you want to navigate it. If you're a doctor, do you want to wait until you have a Hmong patient who is saying, I can't take this medication because it goes against my faith? Do you want to think about it for the very first time in that moment? Or do you want to talk about it ahead of time and have some critical frameworks so that you can go out there and get whatever job that you want to get or do whatever it is that you want to do with having thought about this ahead of time? And obviously tonight we are here to talk about engaging religious diversity. So we're gonna hear ahead of time how people are thinking about the relevance of navigating religious diversity to our lives. So I'm so grateful to be here um, and I'm so grateful for all of our presenters who is sharing their very interesting research. I'm so happy and eager to learn from all of you tonight.
0: Thank you for those remarks, Bill. So without further ado, Let's launch into it. So I will introduce each of our speakers and then they can, they'll speak for a few minutes and then we will open it up to questions and answers. And uh, probably the best way to watch this, if you want, is to click on the view button in the top right and click it onto the speaker so that the the person speaking at that moment will be biggest on your screen and then everybody else will be a little bit smaller. So we'll start with Esther Stearns. So Esther has worked for many years in corporate America in the tech and investment industries and has now gone back to school to get another degree in religious studies. She's also doing extra work in Greek language and her insights have consistently enriched all the classes that she attends. And Esther has kindly agreed to say some remarks about religion and the world today. So Esther, I'd like to, uh, to invite you to give our first presentation.
2: That's very kind of you. Thank you. Very nice introduction. Um, And uh, yes, as as Dr. Vedlinger said, I spent 30 years in finance and technology and during that whole time dreamed of finding a program like this to attend. Um, So uh, I have to agree to, I think it's the finest one I could find in America. And I looked. Um, But, you know. When I started my career, I had a degree in economics, and that was a useful degree to have in the financial services industry. I was good with numbers, and that was good. But what I found out through 30 years is most of the challenges I faced, most of the skills I needed didn't have to do with numbers. They had to do with people. It was You know, really what makes most people successful or not in the business world is their ability to interact with a whole bunch of different kinds of people, demonstrate respect for them, earn their trust, and motivate them to do whatever needs to be done for the business. And particularly in the global environment, the complexity of people you meet, we we did some business overseas, I would have to say not very successfully, uh, in large part because What I have seen is that often in the United States, we, other people spend, other people in other countries spend a lot of time trying to learn who we are. They study us, they visit us, they learn about us. They take a lot, way more than half the responsibility for understanding and creating the cultural bridge. And what I found is those people I worked with who went the other way, who put as much effort into understanding and bridging cultural differences as people in other countries do with us, they were by far the most esteemed and successful um, people in uh, the business world globally. And that's where I think a religious studies education can be so helpful because religion is so fundamental to the cultures and the people you meet that, and it is so easy to step on toes. It is so easy to assume everybody. I, I have sat in rooms where people from the United States have made statements like, well, we all believe in separation of church and state. Well, actually, we don't, <laughs> is what I'm learning. And that there's a complex set of ways people view that. And all of that diversity, all of that understanding people, I think is, is a, a really important background for the business world. Sorry. Very specifically, also the writing absorbing of complex topics, critical thinking, your ability to communicate complex ideas, all of these things that I've been learning in this program. I really wish I'd been better at when I worked. and, and I think are really good for like if you want to be in customer service, human resources, planning and strategy, all those skill sets are going to, um, are going to be useful. Similarly, understanding people and cultural sensitivity for management, for working internationally. You know, uh, for um, uh, for managing a remote workforce, there's all sorts of jobs out there for people who can work with groups of people in in other countries via Zoom, Zoom could actually be a skill set, that there's all sorts of jobs for people who can coordinate with teams of people doing work in other countries and who can build trust, confidence, friendship with those people and, and, and help bring the whole thing together. So I think you may find that after you get your religious studies degree, you have to do some work to create understanding on the part of a potential employer as to what you bring to the table but I have absolutely no doubt that your skills are going to be much more in demand than, than you know, people may say, what do you study in religious studies for? You won't get a job that way. I, I, I can pretty much guarantee you there are thousands of jobs out there for, pe- go, for people who can really work with a diverse group of people. And, and, um, and I would just I would specifically also, if you have an interest like fashion or food or finance, Research where that in the world that industry does business and focus some of your studies, you know, make sure you've taken the course that really immerses if, if Sri Lanka is an important provider to your industry, make sure you take the course where you're going to learn about Sri Lanka and who's there and how they think and how they have and, and be very purposeful like that. So. I guess that's I just really wanted to make a pitch for humanities majors and religious studies majors very specifically to aspire to the business world, because I can assure you, you are needed. Um, so thank you. What i had to say.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. I love I love hearing things like that, because I've always felt this way that it doesn't have to be that it's directly something connected to religion that there are, there's such diversity in the world, especially in California. You're guaranteed to be working next to people of different religions if you're in an office anywhere. And the more you know, the better The better it is. So we'll talk more about that after. Let's give uh, the next panelist a chance to talk. So I'd like to invite Alexandra Kriz to say a few words. She graduated from our program in 2021 and focused her work when she was a student on entheogen use in world religions and their effects on human consciousness. She'll tell us what entheogens are for those of you that don't know. Um, And she has served in the army. She's run a dog grooming salon and is now building up an amazing spiritual and mental wellness center called Phoenix Nest. Their mission is is to create a community of healing and prosperity in and around Chico to help people deal with disaster and trauma in their lives. So Alex, would you like to say a few words please?
3: Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to see all of my former classmates and my former professors. So like I've literally had nights of tears where I've missed this program. (laughs) I'm not even joking. I went into a a graduate program and I was so grossly disappointed after what I experienced in this program that I actually exited the program uh, because I'm already doing what I want because of the degree that I got through Chico State um, and figured I don't need those letters behind My name, because I'm doing it anyway, and I'm doing it very well, and I'm, as it turns out, this program that we've started has been very well received in our community. So, um, uh, upon graduation, I founded a program called Phoenix Nest Community Project. Hi, everybody. (laughs) And we use a multidisciplinary approach to mental wellness, including the use of a substance called ketamine. So... Um, when used in it's used as an anesthetic, but when you use it in sub anesthetic doses, it evokes a psychedelic experience. And through that experience, um, we are able to help people work through their trauma. It carries a 70% success rate in treating PTSD, um, treatment-resistant depression, suicidal ideation, anxiety, OCD, bipolar, depression, so on and so forth. I've worked with people ages 15 to 73 um, and up from actually, I think even a little bit older. We've It's been remarkable. And through this process, um, our approach is a little bit different. So in some of the clinics, they go and they just put you in a room and they give you the medicine and they call it macaroni. Well, we take three hours with our clients and we, um, we use a ceremonial approach. And by learning world religion, I, we were able to create a set and setting that appeals to, it's not specifically a single religion. It's just the simplicity of setting an intention, lighting a candle, using oils that are were recreated. Um, the, they, the recipes are inscribed inside the temple of Osiris in Egypt. And so it's these smells you've never smelled before, we use eye covers, we use, and music, and then we put you into your experience. So we're altering your senses in all these different ways, but doing it in such a way that you are going inward and experiencing the essence of yourself and being able to cross through potentially, you know, some of your trauma, if it, if it does arise through a different lens and it's working really well. <laughs> and it's amazing what I'm seeing. In fact, I'm little bit tired right now. I just returned from Baltimore. I was flown out by one of our community members to assist him uh, at the hospital. He was at Johns Hopkins and he was having some mental health issues and they were doing, they were, you know, handling it from the medical model, but he was not receiving therapy. And when I arrived, I was told that it was, he was going to be there for another week and a half to two weeks. And what we ended up doing is I brought all of the things that we use in our ceremonial approach prior to administering ketamine. And what we found is that by re, by recreating the process where, you know, we did the oils, we covered his his eyes, and we played the same music that we used during our experiences at our center, he was able to calm himself despite suffering from horrific anxiety. So the use of ritual in association with a something that brings this relief and the sense of joy it was just enough to be able to trigger him to the point that he was denying the ativan (laughs) so he was released on saturday instead of a week and a half or two weeks later and um and that was pretty miraculous and it's not perfect by any means but it was something and it's worth exploring further um there's also a lot of people that come in um I see that Professor Lennon's in here. So um, working with people who have uh, s- trauma around their sexuality because of their religious upbringings, that is like a huge portion of the population that we work with. I've worked with women that didn't know they were gonna menstruate. I mean, so being able to reintegrate women into their femininity, being able to talk to men about you know their their sexuality and the expectations that have been formed through their religious upbringings. This work that we do is, so rooted in religion and and this the understanding of that that there is no way that I would be doing what I was doing if it was not for this program. I can say that honestly. We have uh, we we treat psychiatrists. We are treating therapists. We have people referring us clients hand over fist because the medical model and the tradition the, you know Western approach doesn't work. But what is working is adding meaning to someone's life through a little bit of ceremony and a little bit of ritual in a way that does not offend anyone because of their religious background. We pray with people if it's appropriate. Um, And having that understanding of what is okay and what is not okay allows us to be far more effective um, than we would be without this, this particular approach. So that's what I do. Um, And again it would not be happening we've literally saved lives and it is 100% because of this program that we're able to do this work as effectively as we do thank you
0: fantastic uh, and again thanks for the all the great work you do and i've been to the phoenix center it looks great it's really beautifully laid out they have a very nice relaxing and welcoming atmosphere there and i'm sure there are lots of people who are going to experience spiritual renewal through your services and just alexander what is an entheogen exactly
3: an entheogen is a substance usually of plant origin um the one thing about ketamine is it's the one psychedelic that does not have a plant relative so even like lsd is related to ergot um so we don't have that with the ketamine but it and it works through some different receptors and everything but basically an entheogen is something that alters your state of consciousness usually of plant origin but I use that term usually in there. Not doesn't have to, but um, yeah, it's a psychedelic. It's, it's, when, it's the word that we use when we're trying not to terrify conservatives.
0: Okay, gosh, gotcha. I put a link to the website of the Phoenix Nest in the chat. Okay, thank you. Well, next I'd like to introduce Sarah Gagnabin who graduated from our very own Chico State Religion Program in 2007. And then she went on to do a Master's of Divinity at Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, where she focused on pastoral care. And after she graduated, she worked for many years as a chaplain around Northern California. And then she came back to us to teach in our Religious Studies Program here at Chico. So She went full circle and I'd like to welcome her to say a few words.
4: Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate the um, introduction and I'm a little bit kind of overwhelmed right now because I was just lucky enough to uh, grow up in Chico and know Chico State and kind of stumble into the religious studies program and I always knew it was amazing. Uh, But now getting to hear how it's amazing to other folks kind of makes me feel extra lucky. Uh, that I was able to participate. So yeah, hello, my name is Sarah Gannabin, and I did indeed get a religious studies degree from Chico State, and I also got a humanities degree. And so I I cannot recommend either more heartily. They're really um, in cahoots with each other. When I was here, I did not know what I would do with that kind of degree. I was just deeply and endlessly fascinated by religion and by people and how those two things interact. So I was just continually taking those religious studies classes. Uh, By the time I graduated, I really wanted to learn with people who were believers. It's really interesting to do comparative religions and learn as sort of an outsider. And so I was interested to go to seminary. So that's where I got my Master's of Divinity, which sounds amazing, and an MA also. That was sort of the first time I think that the reality of what I had just done at Chico State hit me uh, because I was not sure what I was doing exactly. When I got to grad school, which was a seminary, I found that a couple of things had happened. One, my background in world religions from Chico State meant that as I went to seminary, to grad school, I knew more about world religions than some of my professors. That gave me um, pause, and it also gave me a little bit of a heads up, I think, because I was able to understand concepts like theology and concepts like ritual in a much broader sense. I had a lot more background information about how those things function in people's lives, So it was the first time that I understood that because I was in one religious context, a Christian context, how much it benefited me to understand beyond that context. Grad school then was the awakening. Aha, I I have something really good here. The other thing it helped in grad school, of course, is that I knew a lot more about Christianity than many of my peers. So just a heads up there, I I got better grades, uh, more than that. I get better placements. If you go into any kind of post-grad degree, if you're looking at what you're going to do in life, you will likely get something like a placement and those are hard to come by. Uh, I got mine more easily because of my background in world religions. And my placement was as a chaplain. When I was a chaplain, I was working at San Francisco General Hospital, which is the area's, uh, I guess, most notorious trauma one hospital. It's also in the Mission District in San Francisco, and it serves probably the greatest, whitest population of people. So then was the first time that I had an opportunity to see how powerful the background in religious studies could be. At this point, I was working with people who were taking their last breaths. And because it was a trauma one, a lot of times these moments were pretty intense, and there was not a lot of time to dilly-dally. And a lot of the people that I was working with, again, were in really stressful and imminent positions. So the background meant that if somebody was a Hindu man and he was taking his last breaths, I could prevent a nurse from actually cutting a sacred thread off of his body, which I had to do. That is a real story. Uh, Another time we realized that one of our patients who was struggling, especially, it's because she was a Muslim patient and she was not used to being alone in a room with a grown man who was not her family. And the nurses kept sending in a man. So just to be able to understand why those people were uncomfortable, that was a big deal. And then every single day I met people of no faith tradition or of varying faith traditions in any state of life. And because I had this background in world traditions, I was able to serve them more effectively. To be clear, it meant that a lot of times I kept the hospital from getting sued. Also, it meant that I might be able to uphold some of a family's most sacred and precious traditions in their last moment of life. Those things felt deeply important to me. And I do not think that I would have had the success at all to do those things. And I may have hurt more people than I helped had I not had the background. That's my work, but a small plug. I realized also in my work that hospitality industries and hospital and healthcare industries hire most successfully from people with comparative religions degrees. Again, mostly because hotels, hospitality industries serve many people and they do not want to get sued. And hospitals also serve many people and they rely on the people that work for them to make sure that they're adhering to really delicate processes in non-religious institutions and religious people.
0: Thank you. Certainly, as I've been saying, I think that there's so many spaces for people with a deep knowledge of religion and culture to work in today's America, and they can contribute really powerful things to the environment. So I'm glad that you, you endorse that idea, Sarah. Next, I'd like to introduce Mike Jimenez, who is a graduating student at American River College, and he'll be joining us uh, soon in the religion program here at Chico State. And he worked for many years in the field of criminal justice, and eventually became the president of the Correctional Peace Officers Association, which is one of the largest prison workers unions in the entire country. We're really excited to have Mike coming into our program and let's uh, hear what Mike has to say about his thoughts on these issues.
5: Good evening, everyone. My name is Mike Jimenez and uh, as um, Dr. Weidlinger told you, I am currently a student at American River College I am studying under Dr. Bill Zanganay-Lester. And I just want to say real quickly that you saw the enthusiasm with which he represented uh, this program. And that's part of the reason uh, that I am so excited and uh, interested in going to this program. So I, I need to give him props for, for heading me down this path. Um, I'm also, uh, I've been applied and I've been admitted to uh, Chico State uh, to start studying in the fall, and I'm really looking forward to that. I want to tell you that I'm honored, and I'm very humbled to be on this panel of of such remarkable people. Um, this is a great opportunity for me. I'm here tonight to talk to you about how um, religious studies intersect with the criminal justice system. And as Dr. Vidalger mentioned, I was a correctional officer for 28 years, uh, and I was also uh, for 12 years of that time, I was uh, president of the California Correctional Peace Officers Association. Um, the story I'm going to talk about today, uh, my narrative, has uh, to do with Ramadan. And, and because uh, this event is occurring during Ramadan, I think it has particular relevance and salience to um, what is going on presently. Uh, in order to set the stage, I need to let you know, I grew up in a little town in Kansas in the northwestern corner. Uh, it's a little farming town of about 3,500 people. Um, my religious diversity, I, I thought we were a religiously diverse community. I, myself, I grew up in a Protestant household, but in my hometown of 3,500 people, there was indeed a Lutheran church, a Baptist church, a Methodist church, and even a Catholic church. So I thought I was pretty well-rounded or in touch with the world of religion. um <laughs> Uh, To say the least, um, none of this prepared me for what I was about to experience or the experiences that I would undertake as a correctional officer working in um, the most diverse uh, state in the nation. Um, I, I had never had occasion to interact with other religions other than those of Christian faith. As a matter of fact, I never even attended at one of the churches, um, the other churches in my community, um, as that just wasn't practiced uh, in my hometown. Um, This story is uh, about Ramadan when I still wore a uniform, so I want you to know it's a little bit dated, but I think the information is still very um, uh, applicable today. Uh, At that time, Ramadan was occurring during the month of August, and so if you do your math, you can find out how long ago that was. But during the month of August, when uh, it was also the anniversary of the, one of the most violent um, insurrections within the California Department of Corrections uh, throughout history, and uh, that anniversary during the month of August always gave us tension. And the fact that Ramadan was occurring during that month only gave us reason to have heightened suspicion and more uh, distrust and more suspicion about what was going on. Unfortunately, uh, that was the approach that we were allowed to have. Uh, it was out of ignorance, and I speak on behalf of myself, it was out of ignorance um, that I approached Ramadan with a, an air of suspicion and distrust. and I approached the people that were practicing that. And it was largely because I didn't understand it or know what was going on. And it was also because um, there was cause for larger congregations of inmates to get together, especially once the fast was broken. And that always made correctional staff nervous. Um, and I want to tell you that the issue of suspicion and distrust is an element of a larger narrative that I neither have time nor space to talk about this evening. But uh, it is fundamental in the relationship between those incarcerated and those who are uh, charged with incarcerating those individuals. And hopefully I'll get a talk about that at some point in time. But my ignorance uh, was a very steep slope towards indifference and also intolerance. When I say it was accommodated, um, that was what it was, was accommodated. We allowed, we provided for different dietary needs. We provided for different programmatic changes. And that was it, was they were accommodated. Nobody ever reached out to make a better understanding or establish a better relationship or, or to try to make a connection about what was going on. In my ignorance and indifference, uh, indeed, I uh, did what Eboo Patel, or what I read in his book, Acts of Faith, described as I betrayed my own faith by treating people other differently than I would like to be treated myself. And, uh, you know, as I sit here today, I'm a little bit embarrassed about that. But what I learned in the in the process and over the years since, and clearly through my religious studies program, is that Ramadan was never to have been, been feared from the very start. It was, uh, like I said, out of ignorance. I and I wish that I had known about uh, Ramadan being a peaceful event, Ramadan being a respectful event, Ramadan being an event for recalibration of uh, an individual for the next for the upcoming year. And I, I wish I had understood so much more about it. Uh, if I had done that, if, if I, and if I could take a minute to talk to myself as that young man, I would, I would tell myself to take a minute and try to understand somebody else's belief system, somebody else's values, and make that connection. Uh, When you take time to learn about what somebody else commits to or what they believe in, it makes a connection at a much different level of human being um, than what you can do by just having a conversation. I tell myself to take time to build bridges instead of bunkers. Uh, In doing so, I would have made myself a better employee, a better officer, and a better person. I had the opportunity, and, and I'm taking advantage of that opportunity now, to have a better impact on my community. Um, the community I'm serving now, I should have done it at that time and and uh, had a better impact on the community I was trying to serve then. Uh, But now I'm able to, and I wish I could have then. but I am certainly able to have a more positive impact on my own humanity at this point in time. And it's a pleasure to be on board in this program. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate your words and your sensitivity towards the religions of others and your desire to learn more about them in order to improve the, you know, the prison systems here. And I really am happy to hear that you were the head of the union of the peace officers, because you seem like a really great guy and somebody that I would love to see in a position like that, making sure that everybody has a sensitivity towards those who are, you know, having difficult times in life, to say the least. So thank you. All right, our final panelist is Morgana Gori Clancy, and she is a current student in our program, studying religion along with multicultural and gender studies. She has a very full schedule. She's uh, the treasurer of the Comparative Religion and Humanities Student Society, which is a a society that we have for the students in our program to meet in a casual way talk about interesting things on their own time. They sometimes have dinners together, movie nights, trivia nights, uh, outings. It's a great way to uh, get in touch with your other students and learn a little bit about religion and humanities as you do it in a fun and relaxing environment. And she's also a program coordinator for the Gender and Sexuality Equity Coalition. So I'd like to invite Morgana to say a few words.
6: I'm Morgana Glory Clancy um, and I am in my final semester here at Chico State. I started minoring in Comparative Religion my sophomore year after taking um, Women in Religion for my major. And it just kind of sucked me into the world of all the different spiritualities and religions and. It was just something super interesting to me at the time. And I think like Sarah said earlier, I hadn't really had like a solid plan for what I was going to do with my degree. But throughout all of my studies with everything else, there was so many um, intersections of it throughout all my other studies. So like political science, I was going to major in that as well, but I am very busy. Um, So I only took a few classes, but I did write a whole essay on um, the intersections of the Bible within our laws and all of that, especially with abortion rights. Um, I had worked for Equality California in the past where I got the chance to work on some bills that were being written um, to stand up for human rights within our laws. And a lot of that, like I said, stemmed religion as well. I guess when people ask me why I study comparative religion, my first and like funny answer is just that i could have well-educated comebacks for like homophobic and sexist family members on facebook Um, but that was just really important to me because i want to know exactly what i'm saying and when i'm standing up for something if someone is saying well my religion says this and it's rooted in some kind of hatred it's really important for me to kind of look at where that's stemming from and working on that because there's not You can't just generalize someone who is religious to their religion, especially within America today. So with my major of gender and sexuality, I am really focused within those aspects within my studies, mainly combating harmful stereotypes that were maybe rooted in religion, like I had mentioned. And just also gender and religion is so huge just to look at. Um, It's really interesting to me about um, the adolescence, in religion and growing up with their identities and how their spirituality and religion actually forms their own identity of oneself we talked about like purity balls and menstrual purity um, and also like just like sarah said earlier childbirth just your knowledge of religion being is really important to help create a space for people to understand and feel like that they could be open with you about their needs and wants uh, because your spirituality is really a huge part of your identity. Um, So yeah, I am studying all of this and my favorite class is women in religion. Um, I love talking about the handmaid's tale when it comes within that class. I took it with Mickey my freshman year and yeah i went through the whole entire holy bible and the book and i wrote this giant essay that to this day i'm still proud of even though it was four years ago and so i just love talking about religion and now that i'm applying for jobs and looking for different areas to work in like the rape crisis center um, domestic violence and services any other advocacy it's really helpful for me to have this background and to be there for everybody else
0: okay thank you very much morgana and again That is yet another field in which religion plays a really important role in uh, gender and sexuality issues. So many people's attitudes towards these are shaped in some way by religion. So even outside of one's overtly religious life, there are still many religious ideas that percolate into people who don't think of themselves as religious, that just underlie their attitudes towards these issues in today's society. So learning about it in detail and understanding the history of the different uh, views of these issues and the different religions gives you incredible power in today's society to really uh, explain your own views about it more clearly to people who might be opposed to your ways of thinking or whatever. So I'm really glad that you brought up this topic, right? So religion applies to the work world, of course, to the spiritual world, also to the world of sexuality and identity, to the world of prisons, of um, psychology. All of these fields are deeply impacted by religion. And I hope that our presenters have helped you guys appreciate that studying religion does not necessarily mean that you're going to go on to be a priest. You know, people say, well, I don't want to be a priest or a rabbi, so I'm not going. I mean, of course you can. That's another possibility. It's just that that's only one of many, many, many possibilities that you can do with the degree. And of course, I do want to point out that we are a state-funded university. So of course, our department is not teaching the religions from the point of view of faith. We are teaching them as objectively as we can in a scholarly manner. Of course, you are free to believe whatever you want, and you're free to go on if you are a deeply uh, religious person, you're free to go on to become a religious leader in your own tradition if you want. But that's not the main focus of our department. We focus on studying religions from an academic and objective standpoint. Again, in as much as one can be objective about these things. Why don't we open up the floor to some of our guests who've come in and uh, would like to ask some questions. So you can either uh, just open your mic and ask it, or if you don't have a mic that works well, or if you would rather, type it into the chat. So go ahead and type into the chat or ask a question on your mic, if we have. I mean, I've got plenty of questions, so don't worry. But I'll give you guys a minute to think of questions before I ask them on your behalf.
1: I'll just, uh, while folks are thinking of something, I'll uh, just share a a thought and a question. Um, So I particularly appreciated, uh, well, obviously, uh, everyone's contributions. This is uh, such wonderful speakers tonight. Thank you all for your uh, important contributions, um, all the beautiful things that your ways that you're applying this work. Uh, so meaningfully in your lives, Uh, it's really rewarding to hear and really inspiring to hear how you're all putting your knowledge to use. Um, And I'm still kind of laughing. I particularly appreciated, uh, Morgana, when you said uh, that part of the reason uh, why you like having this knowledge is so that you can have snappy comebacks uh, for family members and others. You know, I don't want to walk by that one. Uh, That's an important one Uh, (laughs) because we live in such a strange time, uh, you know, with the advent of the internet and platforms like uh, Twitter and, you know, everything that we see online, you know, there's a a platform for folks who, you know, for good and for better and worse, who haven't had platforms before. We have a lot of opinions out there. A lot more opinions, some of them are informed, many of them are not, right? And so in a world where you have to navigate Twitter and you have to navigate Instagram and you have to navigate all these kinds of nonsense that people will say <laughs> without <laughs> having you know, researched anything, the ability to have a comeback for that is not to be walked by. It's actually very important if you're someone who's concerned with meaningful dialogue someone who's concerned with, you know, authentic relationships, whatever that means to you. Um, So I just want to say that 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 was an important point, but I wanted to unpack it because I think that having not, when someone says, you know, all Muslims, all Jews, all Christians are X, right? And then insert stereotype. That's a problem. That's a big problem. And if you're someone there, if you're someone who has the knowledge to see through that, you can do something about it. I shared about you know, the student who's holding the door open for all these other folks so that she can reassure them she's not a terrorist. She had been doing that her entire undergraduate career. And how many people walked by it not knowing that she was doing that? How many other professors didn't know why their student was holding their door? And us, uh, Dr. Vellinger and I are, you know, we, we serve the public, right? But we're only one set of public servants. As we've heard, we have folks working in uh, healthcare and in psychology and in criminal justice. And so there's infinite, infinite, infinite ways that you're applying this knowledge. So I uh, wanted to share that, but a, a question, I really appreciated, Sarah, when you were saying uh, that, you know, you had to stop a nurse from cutting a, a, a sacred thread at someone's, uh, you know, last moments, uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us just a little bit more uh, about that experience. What happened? How did that go down? Uh, that's that's that sounded uh, very important. I know we have a lot of folks going into healthcare. Um, would you mind elaborating on that a little?
4: Uh, certainly, yeah, I would. And, and, and thank you for returning to Morgana's point. I did see that there was a chat question related to that. So I'll just pin that as well. Uh, Sure. So just a bit of elaboration, right? Um, Because chaplains in the hospital do often get called when someone is is imminent, it looks like perhaps they might not make it through the day. In this case, in Sacramento, as you may well know, there's a pretty thriving Hindu population, which is really great. Yeah. Um, However, not everybody is really well-versed in what uh, some Hindu ritual might mean. So this means that for some adult men, they receive after a kind of a spiritual ritual for them, something very important, they receive a thread that they'll wear often under their shirt, kind of forever. (laughs) Uh, It might fall off after time and that's okay, but you're not meant to cut it because it can be for some people a really spiritually important thread that they wear like a sash. Uh, So because this man had come in and his family had come in and he was experiencing cardiac issues, uh, that was the nurse's main reaction, was to be able to take off his shirt, take off anything hindering them, and perhaps try to render life-saving aid. Um, but I was able to notice that the nurse coming in, of course, she was doing her job perfectly, uh, came in with scissors. And as she was coming at the man with scissors, I heard her his family uh, yelp, scream. And it became really clear that they didn't want that to happen, and the nurse was just in autopilot. So I jumped in and I just asked her if she could please find any way at all around cutting that, even if it meant removing it, and then very quickly asked, is he going to make it through the day? And if he's not, can we make sure he dies with that on? Um, And that really, it took what, 30 seconds and people were still able to do what they needed to. Um, But knowing that that thread should not be cut and seeing the distress it would have caused the family means I was really happy to be there and be able to think very quickly about how we might mitigate that situation and allow this person to have his last moments wearing something that's really
5: deeply meaningful to him and his family.
0: Wow. Thank you. Thank you. So we've got a lot of questions here on the chat, so I'll start going through some of them. So uh, one person wanted to ask Morgana if she can think of a more specific example of a situation in which Um, There was some social situation when her actual knowledge gained about sexuality and religion from the program came into play. Maybe somebody said something and you counted them with some actual knowledge. Can you think of an example?
6: Um, I actually have so many. Um, A lot of them are just like little ones, but um, I am a certified lead facilitator for our Women's Circle program on campus. Um, I've been doing that since my freshman year as well after taking it as a student, but basically we're sort of like, we're not a therapy group, but we're more of like, um, we focus on our being our most well-being as women and anyone who identifies as a woman. Um, A lot of those times we do have different students from different backgrounds, and a lot of those times we have people who express past Um, I guess like sexual violence that has to do with religion and it's really hard when you are also a student and you're sitting there and someone is telling you their story, and then there's somebody else who are also like they feel it's not like they don't feel bad about it but in their mind they feel like their religion is what saves them and then this other person feels like religion is what hurt them. Um, so we have that issue arise and it was something where as a facilitator I kind of had to step in and be like whoa whoa like we need to separate this and this necessarily mean that you need to give them um, advice that maybe would help you um, but with them it may not help Um, but yeah just as a facilitator I had to step in and just kind of lay ground rules between what religion is and spirituality is within each other. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an organized religion um, or a spirituality that is what is connecting you, if that makes sense. Um, And like other ways too, was my job as a program coordinator. We have a lot of people who come up and ask for help with advocacy um, in several different venues of violence that they have faced. And some people are quick to blame it on, they can't go for help because of their religion is holding them back. They feel like the blame is on them. Um, and I, a lot of the times, have sat down with them and kind of went, had them break it down themselves. Never told them exactly what it is, but let's unpack this. Why, what exactly is your religion telling you? Um, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's, there's a lot of instances where I've kind of like even said that's not true about your religion or if someone's like well the bible says like homosexuality is a sin um homosexuality the term wasn't like coined until like the 19th century and I mean all your sacred texts are from the 7th century so hold on is that something you're coming up with based on what you're reading or is that what is actually being said? Um, but it's just really nice to have this background and kind of like know what I'm talking about when I'm stepping in and trying to advocate for those people in any way without belittling anybody else's religion or their spirituality.
0: Great, thank out? you. <laughs> yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you. All right, now somebody wants to ask Mike about the other um, the other correctional officers. Do you think that there would be acceptance amongst them to learn more about other religions? I I personally
5: believe that correctional officers as a rule would be very open to to, um, the humanity involved in the discussion that we're having. I believe that most officers get into their job because they have an altruistic view of the world and they want to make a difference and they try to make a difference. But the system itself, um, with regard to that question, the system is designed to not allow you to make a difference. The employer, I, not one person within the employee as the employer, but the employer as a whole being the state of California, wants to establish division between incarcerated and those who are holding them incarcerated. They want a very pretty distinct line between the two. And all training is designed to reinforce that divide of, of, of that chasm uh, between the two Um, cultures uh, incarcerated and those holding those incarcerated. But I believe uh, anecdotally, and I met a lot of officers uh, throughout my experience as president of the CCPOA, um, and I believe that the overwhelming majority tried to do the right thing, and they're interested in doing the right thing and doing something for humanity and doing something for their community as well. Uh, But there are too many, there are a lot of bridges, and like I said, I could talk about that at great length about what the design of us versus them, uh, how that's foundational to the entire society uh, within a prison. Um, Values like understanding and compassion in the prison environment are not, those things that we in society seem as valuable or see as valuable are not viewed as having value within the prison system. They are viewed as being, uh, (coughs) kindness is viewed as weakness, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, and if you ever step on a yard, you want to know who the kindest is. Nobody wants to be known as the kindest inmate, and nobody wanted to be known as the kindest officer either. But I, I think there's something to be said in that, that if the employer encouraged and and um, uh, engaged in that type of intercommunication, inter- uh, those kind of skills that could uh, advance the objective or, or the mission of the Department, uh, I think that they could do a lot for uh, not even the people that they're currently that we're currently housing, but for uh, the society as a whole when they're released. And I do believe, in answer to the question, in short, yes, I believe the officers are interested in doing the right thing by their own beliefs, by the system, and and by the uh, incarcerated they're charged with keeping.
1: I've got a question for Alexandra, if I may. We've been hearing about trauma and serving communities with trauma. And uh, this question was asked of of Morgana. I'd like to extend it to Alexandra too. Alexandra, you mentioned that you uh, serve some of the LGBTQIA plus community in some of your work. And as you mentioned and as Morgana mentioned that uh, when serving the LGBTQIA plus community, Mm -hmm. when it comes to religion, there can be a lot of trauma there. So I'm wondering how do you have any examples of how your knowledge um, helped you to more effectively serve the LGBTQIA plus community?
3: So with the work that I've done, I've actually done more work with some younger people um, that are non-binary. Like I have a young one that's 15 and identifies as non-binary and they haven't so much experienced necessarily like that. I have experienced it more not so much with the clients as I have with practitioners (laughs) who are religious and Christian. And in fact, I mean, something that came out of their mouth was so appalling that I just kind of looked at them and was like, well, my understanding is that Jesus lived in unconditional love and that God is the one that gets to, to judge. So why is it that you are... Being so judgmental and hateful of somebody, I said, you know, why why aren't you looking at, at somebody with compassion, or why aren't you looking at them with an open heart? Why are you looking at them from this lens of judgment and hatred? And so, more than anything, the way that I view religion is more from the perspective of if this is your leader and this this is the person that you are following, following, how would that person treat them? Like, if you are a Christian and you are being hateful, is that what Jesus would do? No, it's not because that's just not a, not a thing. Um, As far as supporting LGBTQIA people, um, it's been not so much religious persecution that they've experienced, you know, or like from that perspective, it hasn't been so much faith-based that I've worked with personally, Um, but I will say that I've seen it so much more from the practitioner side and more like have taken kind of this defense mechanism to create a safe container, to ensure that people are not entering the container that might bring that energy to the space. And we do have, um, practitioners, you know, that, that are part of that community themselves and making sure that people are supported with somebody that can truly relate to the experience. So much of what we do is more based around their, um, their personal growth and development. Like you don't have to be a licensed therapist to work with us. You just have to have done your work and have a really, you know, what's your story and where are you at now? And we find that we get far better results because of the relational aspect rather than the power dynamic that may come with the therapist and, you know, client relationship. We we really operate more from the heart space than we do from the other side. And not to say that therapists don't operate from the heart space. We just are, we have so much more ability to go into these depths that others don't and we're very mindful to make sure that people feel 110% supported through their experience.
1: Thank you. You know that's that's so powerful to think that uh, you know the practitioners will benefit from kind of checking themselves uh, on their biases. Uh, because how can you uh, serve a population if you if it's in conflict with some beliefs that perhaps you haven't examined. And so it sounds like you're able to create a space where you're able to say, does it really say that? Is is that really part of it? I mean, imagine how many people who could be harmed by this practitioner who is harboring this belief. uh, How effectively are they able to serve a population that they are not being able to see because they haven't examined their own beliefs? So the fact that I'm hearing you say that you're able to create a space where you can even have the conversation that that sounds transformative. Thank you.
3: Well, our our entire our entire foundation is operating through unconditional love, creating a container of unconditional love. And if you carry biases like that, you're not a container of unconditional love where somebody's going to feel safe to really do the deep work that they need to do to release the trauma that's been holding them back.
0: Fantastic. And Sarah, there was another question for you about as a chaplain, have you experienced families that have two different religious backgrounds and the families start arguing about how the patient ought to be treated? While the patient may be unconscious and they're saying, well, we should do these rituals or those rituals.
4: All the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that happened quite often I'm um, in many different ways. Um, there were sometimes family members who were concerned about the health and well-being of the patient's soul and would ask me if I would try and convert them. Of course, I would not do that. Um, There have definitely been family arguments about what rituals to do as somebody is taking their last breaths, whether or not they should be Catholic rituals or non-Catholic rituals comes up quite a bit. Um, And then afterward as well, there's um, wishes to be carried out. And so while a patient may have wanted something, it's important to be able to navigate with family what they are going to do and what they're comfortable with.
0: I'd like to ask a question for Esther. Esther, I know that you're taking some additional languages, right? You're studying Greek as well. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and uh, so, so, everybody, we do have language study. It's usually done on an uh, individual or a very small class basis. I've taught Sanskrit a number of times. Uh, Dr. Weirich has taught Greek. Uh, we've taught Hebrew. It depends on what the need is. So that's kind of on an as-needed basis. But between us, I did a survey a couple of months ago. in the faculty, between us, we speak 18 languages, which is pretty amazing. So we have 18 languages amongst the faculty. And Esther, I was wondering, did you feel that studying the ancient Greek gives you a different window into reading something like the New Testament or other uh, texts in Greek that you wouldn't get in a translation?
2: Oh, well, yes, because actually it turns out that some of the translations are just outright wrong. It's kind of stunning, really. So I, I... I studied Greek in high school and college and dreamed of getting back to it. And so and tried to keep it up for all those years. And then I picked up Hebrew, too. I'm not as good with Hebrew. But even with Hebrew, I have found things and it's like, well, okay, I just don't, that is not what it says. And so, and I'm also really kind of interested in particularly, how uh, language around sexuality and marriage and infidelity and so forth doesn't translate well between cultures. So a word that means one thing in one culture just doesn't mean the same thing in another culture because there's a different value system at play. And so, so that's been really—I mean, it's an incredibly geeky thing to be interested in, but it's 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 been very educational. And um, Jed, who. I do Greek with, my Greek has gotten so much better. Um, I can read, you know, it's been pretty phenomenal, actually.
1: So I had a question for Esther uh, briefly, if I may. Esther, can you tell us how does religion intersect and when has ever religion intersected with finance?
2: (laughs) Well, I actually am also kind of interested in this whole question of how religions fund themselves. I think there's a lot to understand about the economic. If you understand who it is that really funds religion, who's giving to religions, why they are, what they're getting for that. I think there's, a frankly, a lot. And, and later in my after I get more of a base, I'm hoping to spend some time on that. But even more importantly, in a more day to day sense, you know, you really can't do business with people in other countries unless you understand how they think about uh, money. And a lot of that is embedded with their religious attitudes. I mean, I said our global efforts weren't very successful, and they were not at all. And partly because we really did not understand uh, views about usury, you know, things that aren't a real problem, lending money to people, which is not really a problem in secular America, but is a big deal in other countries. And we missed a lot of cultural cues that cost us to do unproductive things, um, and like I say, people are so nice to Americans, they're so deferential, they won't, They're because of our power and money in so many business situations, that we can be oblivious to them, and they don't want to say anything, because we've got the, and so, you know, we're just these clueless people stumbling through, and they're, oh, yes, 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 but really, we're missing a lot about it. Does, is that, can we, it make sense?
1: So that That's extremely helpful. I think the, the way that religious beliefs have been tied to lending money is, is you can't understand the history of, of financing or banking without understanding that. And as you pointed out so importantly, um, that's still a factor in many countries right now. So if you're going to do anything with international finance, you better have some religious literacy to inform that.
2: Yes. Yes, how banking laws are very embedded in how people feel about money. And they're all different in every country.
0: Not to mention that the word credit comes from the word credo to believe, right? It's a religious concept that you, there's, you have faith in the person's ability to pay you back, but it's connected to religious ideas of faith. Not to mention that money, paper money was invented in China by basically a Buddhist monks who used it for various transactions. And of course, they invented paper as well in order to have a better medium in, on which to print the Buddhist texts. But um, not to mention that the printing press was invented both in China and in Germany, in both cases, only to print religious texts. I mean, that's why they were invented. And okay, maybe you'll print some other ideas someday on them. But basically, they figured... We can use these things to express religious ideas in greater numbers by just printing things and getting them out there. So religion has been at the basis of so many developments, not just in philosophy, but in science and technology and everything that we really deal with today. And sometimes people don't appreciate that enough, I think.
3: I would argue that science is a religion at this point. where some Well, people...
0: there's no <laughs> doubt, yeah. Although again, and there's a lot of aspects of religion that rely on evidence and not faith, right? So people think that all religion means that you just believe in whatever you read. But no, there's much more to it than, than just that, of course. Many people don't know that when the Big Bang Theory was developed, there was a lot of opposition from scientists to it because they thought it sounded too much like the Bible, and they didn't want to endorse what the Bible says, the Big Bang Theory. Before that, Do you know what scientists thought? How did scientists think the world began before the Big Bang Theory became popular in the 1950s? How did most scientists think the world began? Any idea? They didn't think it began. They thought it had always existed since time eternal. The idea was that it never started. It had just always existed for eternity. And the Big Bang said, no, there was one point when it exploded out. And they said, well, that's a little bit too much like the Bible. Religions can also be applicable to the film industry. Oh, absolutely. In fact, we're starting a new course next semester, everybody, religion and film. We're going to be doing religion and film. We had it 10 years ago, and people love that course. So we're trying to build it up again. So keep your eyes out for that. Religion applies to film, to music, to novels, to art. I mean, how much art was up until 200 years ago, basically every art piece everywhere in the world was in some way connected to religion. So, I mean, it plays a huge role in so many fields. It's really a great idea to learn more about it. So thank you so much, everybody. We've enjoyed having you all as students. We enjoy having you currently as students and we look forward to having others of you as students someday in the future. If you'd like to learn more about the Department of Comparative Religion and Humanities, please go to our website at csuchico.edu/slash C O R H. That's csuchico.edu/slash C O R H. I want to point out that the opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect those of the faculty and staff of our department.